Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Hello there, friends. I am super excited for you today because this podcast episode is outstanding. Um, I can say that without being, you know, like a complete and utter egotistical maniac because I'm interviewing somebody super smart. I have like smart women is just, I can't even tell you the um, degree of excitement that I get when I I just, I'm so inspired by super smart women. It just like lights me up. So this conversation with Dr. Julie Greenberg is tremendous. It's all about the skin. So first of all, let me tell you just a little bit about her. Uh, Dr. Julie Greenberg, she's a a licensed naturopathic doctor, She's also a registered herbalist and she specializes in integrative dermatology, which by the way, is like a really rare thing. In fact, when Dr. Greenberg first reached out to us about coming on the show, we said, no, we get just, we're not assholes. We just get a tremendous amount of, um, of people reaching out who want to be on the show, which yay, amazing. Uh, but what can happen is that if we repeat the same topics, it starts to sound like an echo chamber. And I always just, the way that I see it is I always want to bring people on the show that are going to be able to speak on higher level topics in a much more comprehensive or in-depth degree than I can, or else what's the point of having a show? I could just, you know, riff on a bunch of stuff. And so I'm like, well, we've already kind of covered the gut skin connection But the more I learned about her and how phenomenal her information is and how well-researched she is, I was like, we got to get her on the show and you'll you'll see why. Um, And now I know that I have a lot of um, practitioners and clinicians that listen, listen to the show. Uh, so you're going to really want to like bust out your pen and paper for this one, gang. Uh, there's a lot of, of great information. And if you're not a practitioner or a clinician, if you're, uh, you know, a lay person, I feel like after three and a half years of podcasting, a lot of my audience really likes the high level information. They really like to, to geek out and get a ton of information. I mean, I feel like that is definitely the audience that I've kind of brought into the show over the years. Um, so you'll love this, but if you're unfamiliar with the gut skin connection, this is not going to be your starting point. Like I said, it's really more higher level stuff. So I would first recommend checking out both episode 121 and 122, The Gut Skin Connection. It's a two-parter. They're both about an hour long. um, And that really explains the connection between the gut and the skin if you're not familiar with it. Uh, So Dr. Greenberg is, is going to expand upon some of those principles that we discussed in those two episodes. So just understand that's not a starting point. I also have a page on my website, erinholthealth.com forward slash skin, that also gives a lot of good um, foundational information about this. So check that out. So Dr. Greenberg is really well studied. She she has a clinic called the Integrative Dermatology Center where she works with a lot of patients. Um, and so she's going to talk about how she sees certain things and how she treats certain things and how she tests for certain things in her private practice. I want you to stay up till the end because we get into Botox, we get into fillers. I was just like, it was just like a last minute question that I wasn't planning on answered, uh, answering, but I've had an uptick of people asking me about Botox and fillers. And I'm like, let's ask, you know, a, a dermatologist this question. So stay tuned for that. And, um, 
Otherwise, it's just a really great convo. Listen, she she does mention a couple of times in the, the interview, she's, she talks about fibers, but we don't really get in way like depth of like what, how to feed yourself with those fibers. So episode 78, how to eat for true gut health and episode 147, um, inflammation and what you're not eating. Both of those are going to go more in depth to the fiber conversation. So if you were left wanting for more, I got your back. There's more details there. And then, um, finally, as a reminder, if you're listening to this, a lot of what we talk about are things that I do in my private practice. These are tests that I'm running on most of my clients anyway. I do see a lot of these skin conditions, as you'll hear us talk about on the show. Um, My other coach, Rachel Mystery, is very, very, very um, well acquainted with skin issues. And we are taking on clients. So you can head to erinholthealth.com forward slash membership and fill out an application form there. If, if you're listening to this and you're like, I, I need help, <laughs> this is, I need some help here, then let us help you. Um, finally, before I hit play, you can check out the show's sponsor. We love our sponsors. They make the show possible. Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash funk is the place to check it out. I'm running the carb compatibility project right now and have been getting a lot of questions about protein powders. Protein powders keep coming up. And I don't know if I've ever talked about Organifi's protein powder. I have a couple of tubs. I've got the vanilla and the chocolate. Both are really good. The The protein that they use is a blend of pea protein, uh, so organic pea protein, organic flaxseed, organic quinoa, and organic pumpkin, pumpkin seed. Um, it is quite sweet. It is sweetened with stevia with um, some coconut sugar as well. So just a heads up, if you don't like super sweet things, you might not like this, but I love adding sweetened protein powders to my smoothies just because I can get in a lot of veggies that way. So that's kind of like my pro tip hack. Anyway, you get 20% off when you use the code funk. So don't sleep on it. All right, that's it. Here's Dr. Julie. Oh, wait a second. I have to shut this out in case you're a fish fan. I myself am like really not, but if you've listened to the show for long enough, you know that I married into fish. My husband is a big, big time, big time fan. Anyway, there's a fish song called Susie Greenberg. So I just cannot help but sing that song in my head when I think about Dr. Julie Greenberg. Anyway, some of you will get that. Some of you won't. Bye. Okay, we have Dr. Greenberg on with us today. So Dr. Julie Greenberg is, I'm going to just turn the mic over to you essentially today because I want to let the expert do the speaking, but we're going to do a bit of a deeper dive on skin health. Um, I just feel like in the functional medicine space, we hear a lot about the gut skin connection. So I think people kind of get it that there's a, there's a connection there, but I would really like to get a little bit deeper into specific conditions, eczema, psoriasis, rosacea, acne. I just, I am definitely seeing an explosion of this. Um, and first of all, welcome to the show. And then let's get into it. Second of all, why, why, why is people's skin freaking out? Yeah, well, hi Erin, it's great to be here. Um, you're you're absolutely right. It's it's so interesting because in the both the naturopathic medical space and I'm a naturopathic doctor and the functional medicine space, which you know they overlap quite heavily. We do. We we talk as practitioners. The gut skin connection and the gut is so important and treat the gut. But then for some reason, when it comes to skin, practitioners kind of forget all about it and they're not actually testing and treating the gut, right? And we're still like, oh, look, it's happening on the skin. Let's put a topical on it. And it's really not any way that we can address a root cause of what's happening in skin. So fundamentally on, I would say almost all of my patients or all of my patients who can afford it, I test and treat their gut. We do a stool test and a urine test because I want to see the specifics of the microbiome. And the microbiome is is not just bacteria. Of course, it it encompasses bacteria, but there's also fungal elements. There can be viral elements, parasitic elements like worms and protozoa. And I need to know the whole thing. And it really is the root cause. Um, We can get into specifics, but um, for example, acne, right? We, we look at acne and 
you know, I'll age myself, but I, in my generation, acne was really a teenage problem. And it was like, oh, okay, if you've got acne, you're going to outgrow it. That was really actually pretty true. Most people, unless you had a very severe history of really bad acne in your family, you were going to out outgrow acne as a teenager. And that was going to be that. It is not the case anymore at all. I have a lot of adult onset acne or patients who their acne never went away um, since they were teens. And there's just crazy statistics now for adult acne. 65% um, of menstruating females report ongoing issues with breakouts about a week or two prior to menses. So that's around when we're ovulating and hormones are kind of going crazy. It's not just women, men and women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, up to 50% of them are reporting issues with acne. And so, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what's, what's happened, what's changed? Because it really wasn't like this. It was not a, a ubiquitous adult problem. And then I take patients through. So as a naturopathic doctor, one of my tenants is doctor is teacher. So I spend a lot of time in my visits educating patients on what's going on. And we look at research on indigenous cultures. So when we look at tribes around the world who are living like in the forest, non-Western lives, you know, what you would think of if you turned on National Geographic Channel and was watching a special. We see again and again that tribes all over the world who live indigenously they don't have acne. And it doesn't matter if the tribe is 115 individuals or 1200 individuals, the Amazon rainforests, Papua New Guinea, um, islands that are remote, all of these populations, they do not have any acne. And I mean zero. Researchers can't find any sort of lesion on them. And these populations don't have words for acne because they've never seen it. And so then you can say like, okay, maybe there's something genetic weird happening with the populations we're studying. But no, when they move into westernized society, they can and do develop acne. So we know it's not a genetic issue. And it really comes back to the gut. And I'm actually presenting some research at an upcoming um, IFM conference, which is the Institute for Functional Medicine. I'm going to be producing um, a poster. And I uh, sampled randomly 36 uh, lab results of my acne patients. And so we took their stool tests and their O tests and looked for what conditions are happening most often in the gut of my acne patients. And I already knew going in, I, I felt that these three conditions were the issue. And, but we looked at all the data to see like what's going on. Is that really the issue? Are there other things? And it came out what I thought. And that is the three most common things I see in the gut of my acne patients are first H. pylori, 94% um, of my patients with acne have H. pylori. And we'll, we can talk about H. pylori and how that affects um, the stomach acid and the rest of the digestive tract. 92% of my um, acne patients have elevated candida or, can, or full-blown candida overgrowth. And over 50% of my acne patients had protozoa. So, uh, I included all types of protozoa. So that could be anything from Giardia to Blastocystis hominis to Entamoeba. It didn't matter. I just put all protozoa in. And going in, though, those were the three conditions that I really felt like I was going to see. And after, you know, hundreds and hundreds of tests, I, I do kind of know with my different conditions, round and about what I'm going to see on their gut because there's different profiles going on in their gut for different conditions. Um, but that, that, those are my acne patients, H. pylori, candida, protozoa. I go in and I treat those things again and again, and my acne patient's skin clears up. And it can take some time, you know, you can't treat everything at one time. And of course, you know, the basic tenant of naturopathic or functional medicine is, is treat the person in front of you, which is why I still like to go do that testing, because there's usually other things going on as well that I need to treat, like leaky gut or low secretory IgA or, you know, lots of different issues that I need to treat along with the basic core issues that I'll see. Um, and so I, I do find it helpful to still test the individual because um, every person gets a different treatment plan depending on what's happening. But I really do think it, it gets down to our gut microbiomes. They are fundamentally different from those in indigenous cultures. And it, it, a lot of it comes down to fiber. So American, standard American diet, people eat around 12 to 15 grams of fiber a day. And that is not nearly enough. And we can't actually digest fiber. So the fiber that we eat is actually food for our gut microbiome. 
And a lot of the good bacteria that we need in order to maintain a healthy microbiome and not get a leaky gut needs that fiber. Well, 12 to 15 grams a day, it just is not gonna cut it. And, and that means that instead of eating vegetables and fiber, that individual is likely eating refined carbohydrates, sugars, you know, fats, and things that are gonna feed a dysfunctional microbiome. Indigenous cultures eat 50 to 100 grams of fiber a day. So their microbiome looks very different. They don't have leaky gut. Uh, they don't you know, have these issues uh, with the H. pylori, the protozoa, and the candida overgrowth that we have. And, and I really think it does come down to fundamentally the diet, the fiber, the lifestyle, um, you know, the antibiotics, the alcohol, and um, the medications that we're exposed to in Western society that, you know, are clearly not happening in indigenous cultures. Just, just those few things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm curious with, with the fiber talk, we talk a lot about fiber here on the show. How, what, how do you feel about the carnivore diet? Because I've actually had people come to me who are on a carnivore diet to heal their skin, right? Whether it was psoriasis, acne, um, I think those are the two, and eczema. Those are the three that I've seen the carnivore diet used for with some good clinical results, I will say. And carnivore diet is essentially zero grams of fiber. So I'm curious if you ever see any of this. My goal, just to be clear, my goal if somebody comes to me on a carnivore diet is to transition them off of a carnivore diet and start eating more plant foods. But I'm really curious to hear if you see this at all in your, in your clinic. I do. I see people coming to me. A lot of them have done um, keto for a while uh, and or carnivore diet. So they're, you know, a lot of my patients are, uh, I think like your clients and listeners, they are well-educated. They are trying to understand their bodies. They're trying to get out there and have answers. So I do have a lot of patients who come to me on keto or carnivore. And there's a couple things. I think that they can see benefits sometimes because at least you're cutting out refined carbohydrates and sugars, right? And you're gonna see upside from that when you lower that load. Uh, those are pretty um, detrimental to the system. So I think that's why sometimes we can see benefits. And I don't think there's a problem with short-term keto or short-term carnivore, because I think in, in some ways you could be mimicking what would be happening, you know, out in nature if we still lived in caves and we're at the mercy of the environment. There's going to be times of fast and famine. I, I like intermittent fasting. I even, you know, fasting for several days or a week. There, there are benefits to those. So I don't mind short-term carnivore or keto, but I really mean like a week or two. I, all of my patients who have done it for any significant period of time, when we go test their gut, we see something consistently called insufficiency dysbiosis, which means when we look at the normal commensal section on the stool test, it's low, 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 low. There are, the bacteria in our gut are living organisms. And just like any living organism, if you don't feed it, it's gonna die. And so there is a cost to doing long-term or, or longer-term carnivore and keto. You're gonna lose the beneficial uh, bacteria in your gut, specifically things like Acromantia mucinophilia, Fecalibacterium prosnitzii. Those are two keystone species that I go look at almost first on every stool test those two alone can give me a really good indicator of the health of the gut and whether or not there's leaky gut. Acromancia mucinophilia, it's in his name, mucin loving. And um, he's, he's an interesting, I called him kind of the Goldilocks bacteria because we don't want too little, but we don't want too much. He eats a little bit of this mucus layer in our gut. And your listeners probably know we, we need a, a healthy, robust mucosal lining in our entire GI tract. Otherwise, we get leaky gut. And acromancia really helps us out because it eats a little bit of that mucus lining, but it stimulates special cells in our gut called goblet cells, whose job it is to produce that mucus. It kind of wakes them up and the goblet cells are like, oh, acromancia is here and it's, it's eating a little. Okay, let's get going. Let's produce some more mucus. And it's a good symbiotic relationship when we have good levels of acromancia. If there's no acromancia, we can risk having le leaky gut 
And also conversely, if there's really too much acromancy, it might be eating down that mucosal layer quicker than the goblet cells can replenish it. And Fecalibacterium presnitiae is another keystone species that needs fiber. And it's wonderful for us because it produces something called butyrate. Butyrate is a short chain fatty acid. And butyrate, for me, I kind of think of it doing three main things. It feeds the intestinal cells. That's the fuel of our gut cells. And we have you know, millions and millions of cells that need feeding. They turn over every 24 to 48 hours. They need a lot of fuel. And we can't make the butyrate, so we need we depend on our good gut bacteria like Fecalibacterium to produce that butyrate. Butyrate is also anti-inflammatory, so it will keep things calmer in our immune system in our gut, um, and it enhances tight junctions. So those cells in our gut are stuck together with things called tight junctions, and we want them to be nice and secure like this to prevent leaky gut, and the butyrate enhances that. So I know if I go test the gut of a long, longer term keto or carnivore patient, there's just gonna be insufficiency dysbiosis. There's gonna be low levels of bifidobacteria, lactobacillus, um, you know, good clostridia strains. And I will often see below detectable limits of acromancia and fecalibacterium. So for me, it's not a good long-term option. If somebody is trying to do it for like a couple weeks to lose weight or get off the sugar train or something like that, I'm okay with it. But really for me, not, not more than just a few weeks. So acromancia is one of my favorite bacteria and I have always considered acromancia a her. Okay. <laughs> so I, like, I like, I like to hear a different perspective, but, um, kidding aside, I, the, when you see, I, so I see acromancia below detectable limits a lot. But I also will see elevated levels of acromancia, and I would love to hear. So I, I feel like there's two different reasons for that. One is if we're not feeding the acromancia enough with fibers, then they are going to go to town on your mucosal layer. And sometimes that can elevate acromancia levels if it's like breaking down your mucus layer. But also I tend to see it more in like inflammatory issues where there's just a tremendous amount of mucus being made like as part of the inflammatory response. And so acromantia is like, whoa, <laughs> like now I got like a feast. So I'm curious if you, if you see, tend to see elevated acromantia patterns and where you kind of go clinically speaking with that. Yeah, I do. Um, I, I definitely see it on patients and um, I, I do usually see it in combination with a low fecalibacterium, which is, you know, cluing me in that, that there is an issue there. If everything is normal um, and it's just a little bit elevated, I'm not overly concerned, but once it starts getting kind of two decimal points up, like significantly elevated, and especially with fecalibacterium missing and, and everything else, uh, you know, kind of a mess, then yeah, I'm reading it similar to you are, to what you are, which is that there's inflammation and uh, problems in the gut and, and we still need to balance it out. Um, I would say more often, and it depends on my patients, so uh, my eczema patients are much more often missing um, acromancia or and fecalibacterium and or you know, quite low in those two, um, whereas I tend to see it more overgrown in more inflammatory conditions like a psoriasis type picture. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, yeah. You had mentioned doing a urine test. So it sounds like stool tests and urine tests are almost like a, like an, you know, you're running on most patients. So the urine test I'm assuming is the organic acids test. So you're looking for elevated fungal markers. Is that your favorite way to look for candida and fungus? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's the OAT, which stands for organic acid test. It's a urine test. So that's that's an easier sell for most people than, hey, I want you to poop into a tray and collect your own stool. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's easy with the babies, but the adults are like, say what? <laughs> with the urine test, I think, you know, everyone's peed into a cup. It's, it's not 
that big a deal. So yeah, the reason like I that I like to run the oat in addition to the stool test is I don't find that the stool test gives me enough of the fungal picture. So candida tends to overgrow much more up in the small intestine. And of course, stool is coming from the large intestine or the colon, that's the back end information. And it's great for the bacterial profile because most, we, we have about three to five pounds of bacteria in our gut as adult humans. And most the the heaviest volume of that is going to live in the colon. So stool test is perfect for that. The bacteria are in the colon. The poop is coming from the colon. That is giving us a good snapshot of what the bacterial load is in there. But with candida and other fungal elements, it can be up in the small intestine or even you know overgrown in other places in the nasal passages or other areas in the vagina. And the stool test is not gonna give me that. So most of the time, my stool test will come back clean on all the fungal markers. Candida, not detected. Every once in a while, something will pop up like a rhodotorula or these other kind of random yeasts, um, but usually they're totally clean. So I do do the urine to predominantly catch that fungal yeast picture. What is urine? It's filtered blood. So nothing is gonna hide from the urine and we look for metabolites. So we're not actually looking for the specific organisms in the same way we are in the stool test. The stool test I use is quantitative PCR. So it's looking at genetic data. The urine test is looking at urine metabolites. And so um, for the oat, it's called arabinose and that's a byproduct of candida. So we're looking for amounts of that and trying to determine um, how much candida is there. But I also like the oat the oat I use also tests for two types of mold, aspergillus and fusarium mold. I wish it tested for more like penicillium and some other ones, but at least, at least it's got those other two because I have found that my patients often have a fungal load as well that even goes beyond candida. And then we need to get into kind of more advanced things like potentially mycotoxin testing and testing the environment to see where is that mold coming from? Because it's not, it's not, abnormal to have candida in the gut. It is a commensal, which means we expect to find candida in the system. That is totally normal. And we're not like, how did candida get in here? But once we start finding aspergillus and fusarium and molds, we do have to start asking what is going on? This is not normal. Molds job is to be out in nature decomposing dead things. So we do not want it growing in our system decomposing things. That's, we're alive, we don't want that. Um, and so then we, we have to really get into the whole mold mycotoxin picture. And I think a lot of reasons why SIBO is so refractory and why so many clinicians find it difficult to treat is that clinicians are relying on SIBO breath tests. And of course, SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And we are very focused on the bacterial piece of it. Um, but I think most patients have concomitant SIFO, which is small intestinal fungal overgrowth. And if you are not taking into account the fungal element of your patient's GI issues or skin issues, in my case, you're missing a big piece of the puzzle. Um, you, it's hard to make headway or you keep getting uh, kind of relapses because you haven't dealt with the problem. And actually giving antibiotics can cause blooms of fungal elements because an antibiotic will only kill bacteria. And I, I tell my patients, there's a fierce battle for real estate going on in your gut and everybody's fighting for space. And every time we take antibiotics, yes, it's going to kill off pathogenic bad bacteria that maybe gave you a UTI or kidney infection. So that's a good thing. We, we want to kill off that bacteria, but it's also going to kill off good bacteria. And when it clears up that space, all the fungal elements that are there, so whether it's candida or molds, they are not impacted at all by back, um, antibiotics. And so it looks at its opportunity to bloom. And I think women inherently know like, oh, I'm on um, antibiotics. Oh, I, I could get a yeast infection. I better eat some yogurt or take some probiotics. That's exactly right. The reason why women get yeast infections on antibiotics is because the antibiotics kill off good bacteria like the lactobacillus in our vagina that maintain a nice acidic pH and keep candida in check. And once they get killed off, candida is like, now's our chance. And I say it's like, you know, if you're at a crowded pool in Vegas in the summer and someone gets up and leaves that lounge chair by the pool, you are gonna put your towel down, your glasses, your book, claim that space for your own. And if they try to come back a few hours later, you're just gonna be like, sorry, you, you know, you left and we're using it now. And that's that's what 
fungal elements in our gut do, they take over the space and then it's, it's hard to get them to move out. You had, um, the organic acid test will also show, um, and I don't want to get too, too far into the weeds, but I'm just curious, um, will also show some detoxification pathways. And is that something that you find commonly, like a common issue with skin issues, or are you really more focusing on the bacterial and fungal aspects? Um, yeah, so there's there's a marker I know that you're you're talking about that it's methylation slash toxic exposure, and when that's elevated, there's there's kind of two directions that we could be going. Someone could have uh, what we call an MTHFR gene mutation, um, where the genetic SNPs or the coding is a little bit off, and so they might not um, be methylating as well, and and you can have issues with that. But that same marker can indicate some sort of toxic element. And those toxins can be mycotoxins from mold, heavy metals, pesticides from the environment, issues from you know, the water that you're drinking. And so when those markers are elevated, I need to kind of combine the clinical history that I've taken with the patient along with what I'm seeing on the test and try to decide which way I'm going. I have to deal with them. For me, the patients who don't, who aren't responding well, or we are getting skin under control and then it's flaring, and then we're getting it under control and it's flaring. Most often what's happening is that there is mold and mycotoxins, and it's really hard to get better in the face of being exposed to um, mold and mycotoxins. The infants have this a lot. They have very angry red rashes. Mycotoxins and mold can cause rashes too. Uh, but there's you know a lot of other signs that I look for. But usually when someone is is not on a pretty positive trajectory getting better, um, I start to suspect mycotoxins and and we do test we do a mycotoxin test, which is a separate urine test that tests for eleven different types of mycotoxins. And then we have to get into environmental testing and figure out is it coming from this home environment? Um, you know with covid, it's it's kind of narrowed down the suspects because most people have just been at home. But prior to that with adults, it'd be like, is it your work? Is it the car? Is it your home? You know, we'd, we'd have to investigate multiple environments to figure out the source of exposure and, and it could be multiple. Um, so it's a pain and it's unfortunate when, when mycotoxins and molds are involved because it's just really this whole other piece of, you have to stop the exposure. That's the first rule of, of toxins. Get out, stop the exposure. Um, and it's not easy to do because it's your home. So you either, if you rent, it's easier to move, but still moving is a horrible pain. And if you own, then you have the decision, do we do a whole inspection and remediation, which is very costly and often not covered by insurance, or do you sell and move? And it's, they're difficult, difficult questions to answer. I really get super bummed out when I see any evidence of, of mold toxicity. It's just like such a bristly bear to say the very least. Um, why don't we, so we were talking a lot about yeast, about candida. Um, I'd like to get into some of the specific patterns that you see with different conditions. So you talked a lot about acne, um, but you know, eczema is huge. So I would just love to hear like clinically what you see, if there's like certain patterns you see with each condition. And I'm sure yeah. there's, I mean, I know there's a lot of conditions, skin conditions. I'm kind of narrowing it down to like the, the, the more common ones that, that I tend to see. Yeah. Yeah. So as we, we talked about with acne, it's, it's really the H. pylori candida protozoa that I'm seeing most heavily. But again, I will, I will caution people, whether you're a patient or a practitioner, you know, these are trends that I see, but you always have to treat the person in front of you because there's going to be other specific issues going on beyond these issues. And, and then as we talked about, potentially whole other pieces of the puzzle, like mycotoxins or other elements. But um, with acne, it's those three. With eczema, it's actually eczema that Staph aureus is the big player. And Staph aureus, I, when I take patients through the PowerPoint and I'm educating them, I, I call it the villain of eczema because we keep seeing it. It just keeps popping up. And the problem with Staph is it's overgrown in the gut. 
it's overgrown on the skin and it colonizes the nose. So we have to get it in all three spots to really clear up the eczema like for good. Um, and it, it shouldn't actually be that surprising. You know, again, we like to treat skin issues like, oh, it's happening on the skin, but we are one body, one person, one mind. The microbiome speak to each other. Everything affects everything else. Um, and as a doctor, as I talked about, you know, when there's candida overgrowth, I will often also be treating um, vaginal yeast infections or anal candidiasis, which is itching and a candida infection on the anus. So, you know, you've always got to be thinking of the whole person and how these things go together. So for eczema, Staph aureus is my number one pathogen. I know it's involved 100%. And I think people think of staph on the skin like, oh, you have to have something like an impetigo or a full-blown staph infection, a boil or something. And that's not true. There's kind of a scale between, um, you know, colonization to full-blown infection. A lot of people are colonized with staph aureus on their skin and in their nose, but they don't have skin infections. But as that colonization number starts to grow, you may not have a full-blown skin infection, but if you've got eczematous lesions like the most common spots for adults are going to be like in the crook of the arms, behind the knees. You have an overgrowth of staph right there that needs to be dealt with. And if you have staph on the skin, you 100% have staph colonized in your nose. So I say it's our man caves. Our nostrils are great places for bacteria to hide out. And that's where staph colonizes. So I have to treat the nose, I have to treat the skin, and I have to treat the gut for staph in all of my eczema patients. The other things I see in the gut of my eczema patients are um, usually it's staph overgrowth and strep overgrowth. Um, I see those both together and candida overgrowth. And candida, I feel like comes a lot up a lot in skin disease for a couple different reasons. Um, we know that in the face of candida, um, it, it compromises the immune system and the immune system is uh, less able to tackle certain bacteria in the presence of candida than not in the presence. So I think that's part of it is that we kind of get this candida overgrowth and then we're a little more susceptible to having like staph aureus overgrow. We just can't fight it as well. Um, candida in large numbers is inflammatory. If you are a woman who's ever had a vaginal yeast infection, you know how inflammatory candida is. It is very itchy, it's red, it's inflamed. There's chunky white cottage cheese discharge. That is the actual yeast, that's the candida. So we know about it immediately um, in the vagina. The same thing is happening in our gut when we get overgrown, we just aren't aware of it in that same manner, but it's just as inflammatory. Um, and we start producing antibodies. So most of my eczema patients, when you look at the literature, um, eczema patients with candida overgrowth are producing a lot of times IgE antibodies to it. And when we treat the candida, the skin gets better. Um, so those, those are my top three um, elements that I'm used to seeing for eczema and, and needing to treat. And again, treat all over, particularly in the gut, but, but all of the systems and make sure I'm catching it. Um, what else? Rosacea, you mentioned. So rosacea is interesting because its pattern is a little bit different. So with eczema and acne, I know I'm looking for very particular patterns. Again, always with the caveat, I'm going to treat the person and, and look and see what issues are going on. With rosacea, it's not a pattern in that same way as much as I know that there's a gut issue and probably a pretty sizable gut issue. So when we look at the research for rosacea, it doesn't track with one type of GI issue, but it tracks with almost all of the GI issues. So if you have your rosacea, you are statistically more likely to have like all of the following, one, like one or more of the following, SIBO, H. pylori, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, you know, IBS. So we can't match it with one GI disease, but we can kind of match it with all. And a lot of my patients, um, when I take the clinical history, their stories are, yeah, you know, about 13 years ago, you know, I started getting some facial flushing and a little bit of redness. And that was obviously the onset of the rosacea. But then over the years, the GI symptoms got worse. And then they actually have full-blown like diagnosed SIBO or full-blown diagnosed ulcerative colitis or um, Crohn's or a combination of them. And so for me, rosacea is, is often the precursor to 
um, really pretty severe GI system problems that are going to develop if it's if it's not taken care of. So I, I can't really pinpoint which GI disease they have. Again, we have to go in and test and I need to see what's going on. But I know that there's pretty severe GI dysfunction if they have rosacea because it just doesn't happen without it. I am prone to rosacea and it definitely flares when, if I have a SIBO flare up, I will see my skin. My skin is the first thing that tells me what's, what's going on. I've heard you say something about vitamin D in rosacea that I had never heard before. And I was like, whoa. So can you tell us a little bit about the vitamin D thing? Yeah, so normally, of course, we think of our population as being kind of vitamin D, D deficient. We don't go in the sun enough. And there's a whole thing people don't realize that even if you're in the sun year round, you can't manufacture vitamin D year round. It's really those summer months and at the high points of the day, there's something called the, the azimuth, the signal, the angle of the sun has to be right in order for us to actually be able to produce vitamin D. So we're always talking about a vitamin D deficiency in our society, which is true. Most of us are vitamin D deficient and giving vitamin D can be helpful for you know, certain conditions like eczema and, and of course our immune system. Rosacea is the one skin disease where I will not supplement with vitamin D because it actually upregulates something called cathelicidin. And um, that is one of the triggers and problems in rosacea. So we have things on our skin called um, antimicrobial peptides, antimicrobial against microbes and peptides or proteins. That, that makes total sense, right? It's not like, gosh, I wonder if our skin is ever gonna come into contact with the bad guy. Thus, his job is to come into contact with bad guys and protect us. So we have lots of different proteins on the skin whose job it is to fight and kill those pathogens. So if Staph aureus gets on me, my antimicrobial peptides are going to go to town and kill it, and I'm not going to get eczema or a staph infection. In rosacea, there's a particular kind of antimicrobial peptide called cathelicidin that we know gets wonky. And instead of producing the right type of cathelicidin, we produce this kind of aberrant type that ends up like causing inflammation and it kind of goes haywire and it's, it's involved in, in that redness and telangiectasias are where you start to see the blood vessels and, and then the more severe type of rosacea is called papular pustulo uh, rosacea. And it's, it has to do with cathelicidin. Well, we know that one of the things that upregulates cathelicidin is vitamin D, right? That's activating our immune system. But when it comes to rosacea, I don't want to activate the immune system where we've already got a problem with cathelicidin, so I don't want to drive it forward. So I, I don't supplement with vitamin D, um, particularly while I'm treating my rosacea patients. And actually, most of them are, are not super deficient. Um, but even if they are, I'm not going to give them vitamin D because it's, it's going to monkey with the cathelicidin and upregulate it, and it can cause flares. We also know that the sun can cause flares in rosacea, and the UV radiation causes problems. But that is the, the one condition where I do not supplement with vitamin D. That is so fascinating, and I don't think that's something most people know. Um, you just said, this is a word that I cannot pronounce, try as I might, the T word, telangiectasias, the little red- Telangiectasias, yeah. I'll never be able to do it. Um, well, and so the longer word is the, the basic kind of rosacea is called ETT, erythmetotelangiectatic rosacea, which is like a 14 syllable mouthful. <laughs> never. But the, um, I know that some people that experience significant Raynaud's um, can experience that as well. Is Raynaud's something that you see in a, in a dermatology practice or is that not really your wheelhouse? So it's more of a cardiovascular issue, right? It has to do with constriction of blood vessels and that's why people get those like very white or purpley like fingertips. It's just complete vasoconstriction where the blood is, is, is literally cut off and that's why the skin will turn white. Uh, so I'm not, I don't treat Raynaud's um, but I do have patients who have Renos. Uh, but yeah, that's more of a cardiovascular kind of wheelhouse. So if somebody came to me and their issue was Renos, I would say, you know, probably best to go see a specialist because that's that's really a cardiovascular issue more than a skin issue. And we know that we it can compare with autoimmune conditions as well. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And speaking of autoimmune, psoriasis is just that's something that I am seeing more and more of too. And I'm, I'm sure you are no stranger to psoriasis. So is there something that you see? There's this whole immune component as well. Um, so I'm curious what you see 
pattern-wise in psoriasis? Yeah, so, so psoriasis is a very treatable disease. A lot of patients come to see me as kind of a last resort, you know, as like, oh, my doctor's trying to put me on, um, you know, the biologics, the injectable biologics, which are lifetime. You have to uh, take these injections for the rest of your life and they are immunosuppressives, right? They're trying to just suppress the immune system. And of course, people know like, that doesn't feel like it's treating the root cause and I don't wanna be on an immunosuppressive for the rest of my life. And so they start exploring. Um, I find psoriasis to be very treatable. And the kind of things I see in the gut are, um, a couple. So Pseudomonas is a type of gram-negative bacteria that's a high, what we call LPS or endotoxin producer. So LPS stands for lipopolysaccharides. Um, anyone who studies leaky guts has heard of, of lipopolysaccharides and endotoxins. And we know that they're really inflammatory to the system. So it's in the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria like Pseudomonas. And as the, if you have leaky gut, um, I, I show patients an image, but you know the mucosal barrier is disrupted. The intestinal cells that are supposed to create a barrier between the bloodstream and the GI tract start to die and open up. And that's what leaky gut is, so that things from the GI tract are leaking into the bloodstream. Once, once we get things like bacteria and endotoxins into the bloodstream, the body has to react. It has no choice but to fire up the immune system. And that's why we have you know, an immune response, the body's actually doing the right thing. And people feel sometimes like their body is turned against them when they have psoriasis or eczema. I'm like, why is my body doing this to me? And I always try to reframe them like, your body has always got your back. It is never doing anything out of spite, you know, even whatever you do to it, it's always trying to do the right thing. And so your psoriatic plaques or your eczema, it's not that your body has turned on you, it's that it's trying to fight something. So in psoriasis, it's trying to fight this influx of, life, of endotoxins. It activates the immune system and there are certain cells called TH17 cells that, that we start building this army to fight this invader. And, and that's basically what's happening. So I, I see pseudomonas a lot overgrown in the gut of my psoriatic patients. There's also a high connection with um, like mycobacteria. Unfortunately, the stool test that I use doesn't test for mycobacteria. So what I often see in the gut of my psoriatic patient's stool test is the stool test is not showing a lot of specific bacteria that are high, but when we get to the oats or that urine test, all of the bacterial overgrowth markers are like off the chart. And we have hundreds and hundreds of species of bacteria in our gut. There's no way to do a stool or a urine test that's gonna show us all of those things. So a lot of times the stool test doesn't show a lot of the specific bacteria but the urine test is showing me high, high bacterial overload. And it's things that are missing from those particular stool tests like mycobacteria that are going crazy. Um, so that's the one condition where I sometimes don't always get to see the specific strains, but I do see that there's massive, massive bacterial overload. And so I, I can still go in and treat it. And, and there's a lot of good, you know, Good, good ways to treat psoriasis and, and, and it still is about treating up the treating the gut, stopping that leaky gut, lowering the inflammation and that influx of endotoxins into the system. Do you find that doing attend with with autoimmune clients, myself being one of them, um, supporting T regulatory cells can really just be very helpful as an overall longer term strategy for autoimmune conditions? Do you find the same to be true for, for psoriasis? Yeah, and there's a, there's a couple ways to approach the Treg cells. So of course, Treg. so I talked about TH17, which are inflammatory cells. They're gonna produce IL-17, IL-23. When you look at the biologic pharmaceuticals that are used in psoriasis, they are IL-17 inhibitors, IL-23 inhibitors, right? So they're trying to calm that TH17 pathway, because we know that that's highly um, upregulated in psoriasis and, and other autoimmune diseases as well. Treg is the calming um, T cells, right? That kind of come in and I liken it to like the UN peacekeepers, like, okay, the war's over, everybody go home, everybody calm down. So that's Treg calming things down. And there's a couple of things that you can do for Treg. Um, one is you go back to butyrate. So Fecalibacterium prosnitzii, that butyrate producer, 
Um, it helps uh, calm down the immune system by upregulating Treg. So I either want to support uh, uh, fecalibacterium, of course, with fiber, you know, or nutrients, um, but you can supplement with butyrate. And I find butyrate helps calm the immune system in, in a lot of my um, conditions. So uh, definitely that's one option. And um, there's a really lovely herb called Scutellaria bicolensis. Um, it's Chinese skullcap. And it's a great herb for psoriasis because it, um, it lowers TH17 and upregulates Treg. So that's exactly what we want to happen in psoriasis. And then topically, there's a um, herb called Indigo Naturalis that is, it's blue, so indigo, the color blue, and it can be used in topical bombs to also uh, lower TH17 and increase Treg on plaques. Um, so I can use the Scutellaria bicolensis internally and the indigo naturalis in bombs and um, try to support and upregulate Treg in, in multiple different ways while I'm trying to calm down the TH17 pathway. Well, that's a really interesting, that kind of segues into another question that I had for you is, uh, as somebody who works with skin, do you obviously you're taking an inside out approach? That's what we've just been talking about for the past 45 minutes. Are you ever in conjunction with that taking an outside in approach as well? Always, every single time. There's a dual faceted plan. Um, as we have talked about, you know, the root cause is happening inside, whether it's acne or you know rosacea or whatever, the root cause is coming from the inside and you have to address it, but it's still happening on the skin. And there's still a lot of things that we can do topically to help support the skin. Um, one of the things I, I talk to every patient about is the pH of skin. Um, pH is a scale from um, acids to bases. And um, all over the body, we've evolved for the body to work optimally at different pH. Well, the skin pH, um, a lot of people are surprised, it's actually supposed to be acidic, but in most of these diseases, and it doesn't matter if it's staph aureus on the skin to even warts or herpes viruses and cold sores, when the skin is not acidic and it, the pH starts to rise and become more neutral or alkaline, it becomes a lot more susceptible to these pathogens to anything going wrong on the skin. And so a lot of the, um, I don't use like obviously steroids or anything like that. I wanna work with the skin. I wanna support the skin and the skin barrier. And so I use beautiful natural botanicals that support an acidic pH of the skin. So if the skin can handle it, we might do apple cider vinegar mixed with water spray. That's super acidic. Staph aureus hates apple cider vinegar. Um, but there's a lot of other things we can put on the skin to support it. Aloe vera gel is acidic, and we know. Have a sunburn, put aloe vera on it. It's good for your skin. Um, hydrosols are water-based plant extractions. They're gentle. So essential oils are very concentrated um, you know, substances that I think get misused a lot and can be dangerous. Um, when used inappropriately, but hydrosols are the water-based plant extractions and they are very safe and they can be used on infants and even animals. Um, usually people, there's, it's very hard to go wrong with a hydrosol. They are naturally acidic. Um, so there's lots of different ways to support the skin topically. And the nice thing about working with acidic botanical topicals is not only are we treating the condition that they're having, so whether it's psoriatic plaques or rosacea, um, but it's good for the skin and it's anti-aging naturally. So skin will age more slowly, the more acidic it is. So every morning I put on aloe vera gel, hydrosols and all of these products, that's part of my natural skincare regimen because I'm about to turn 50 and I'm definitely interested in slowing my skin's aging in a natural way. You know, the, the goal is obviously not to stop the clock, we're aging, that just is a part of life, but we want to age gracefully and healthily. And, and the, the best way to support skin is to keep it acidic with these really beautiful topicals. So, you know, while we're treating the underlying skin condition, we're, we're doing supportive, healthy things for the skin topically as well. I, I wasn't planning on asking you this, but now I kind of have to. First of all, I, I really appreciate you talking about the the differentiation between essential oils and hydrosols because I, I find that every single trained clinician that I speak with, whether they're doctors or even trained herbalists, are all saying the same exact thing, which is 
essential oils are overused and can be dangerous. And they're all kind of, I've heard hydrosol so much. So I appreciate that. I think we just need to keep hearing that and always asking where we're getting our information from. But I'm curious to hear if you have one, uh, a stance on Botox. So I really think it's a personal decision. And a lot of women ask me like Botox versus fillers. For me personally, I, I would, I haven't done either, but if I were going to do one or the other, I would personally go for Botox over a filler because a filler is a foreign substance that we're injecting into the skin, right? And it's supposed to kind of plump out, but it's, it's a foreign substance that's going to sit in under the skin. And the job of our immune system is to go and attack foreign matter. So if I'm going to put something foreign in there, it's going to cause some sort of a reaction, right? And the, the body is going to try to break it down and process it because it doesn't belong there. Botox, you know, it's from botulinum toxin. So it is a toxin. The reason why it, it can help with wrinkles is it paralyzes the muscle. And so again, people need to get Botox or filler injections every, you know, four to six months because the body is breaking it down. But I still think personally, I'd probably rather my body be breaking down the botulinum toxin than foreign substances that are injected into my body. You know, that, that makes me think more like of breast implants and all the problems that we know happen with those, you know, we're not supposed to be putting foreign matter into implanting it into our body. So I don't do any procedures and I don't recommend that people get them, but it is a personal decision. And I, you know, I think if women are, Obviously, first line for me would be, you know, diet and topicals. And, and I, I will say that I do, I really like essential oils and I use them. I think that there are great ways to use essential oils. And there's also anti-aging ones. Um, there's, we produce enzymes in our skin called collagenase and elastase. Well, collagenase breaks down collagen. Elastase breaks down elastin. Collagen and elastin are what give us plump youthful looking skin. And as we age, we naturally produce more of these enzymes and break them down. And there are ways to use essential oils to kind of inhibit that process. So I, I do like essential oils, but as you said, I think people go out and they start buying and using it on their own and it, it can be dangerous. Um, but yeah, as far as cosmetic procedures, I, I really think that that's a personal decision, but I, I do think we just need to acknowledge if we're if we're injecting foreign substances into our bodies, there's, there's going to be a response from our body. That's its job is to respond to it. So, and I, yeah, and I, I would also agree. I, I'm of the belief that we should be able to choose what we do with our own bodies. Right. And so if that's somebody's choice, that is somebody's choice and I would never pass judgment, but I also really think I believe strongly in informed consent. And I think we just have to have all of this information at our fingertips before we make a decision for us. And I would just imagine from based on what you're saying, if somebody has an autoimmune process going on in the body or they have genetic susceptibility to autoimmunity, injecting foreign substances into the body could potentially be a tripwire for that autoimmune process. Knowing, yeah. knowing, knowing what we know about the immune system and kind of the, the process behind autoimmunity. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and unfortunately it's, it's kind of an ongoing commitment in the same way we talked about like biologics are, are for life. So are these, you know, injectable types things. It's, it's not, it's not like a facelift where a surgeon will go in and, you know, remove extra skin and pull it back. And then you've, you've kind of gotten rid of that wrinkle and skin for a certain amount of time with Botox or the injectables. You have to keep doing it because your body is going to break it down. And so it's, it's really an ongoing commitment. It's not a permanent solution. So. Well, that'll give some people something to think about. Anyway, I could, I could ask you about 25 more questions, but I will not because we're at the hour mark. So I really truly appreciate your time. Um, if people are listening and want to learn more from you as do I, and I'm sure many thousands of people do as well. Can you tell us where we can find more of you and more of your education on skin? Yeah. So my website is integrativedermatologycenter.com and I'm a licensed naturopathic doctor in California, Oregon, and Washington. So I can only see patients in those states. So if anyone is potentially interested in seeing me as their doctor, uh, you can head over to Integrative Dermatology Center. And um, again, you have to be unfortunately in one of those three states. 
Um, but if you're not in one of those three states and you're looking for more information, um, I collaborate with an organization called LearnSkin.com, and it's it's actually um, continuing medical education for doctors. Um, but a lot of my patients um, actually go take the courses or find me through the courses because we have such intelligent and um, curious uh, patients. You know, they want this information. So there's a 20 course series called the Naturopathic and Integrative Dermatology Series. And those 20 courses cover a lot of the topics that we went over today. Some are organized by condition. So it would be like naturopathic approach to uh, atopic dermatitis, which is eczema, naturopathic approach to psoriasis, and you can learn about different conditions. And then some of them are um, broader, like um, kind of gut dysbiosis and skin disease or um, SIBO testing for dermatological conditions. And all of those 20 courses are free. So people can pick and choose what they're interested in and you can either read it or watch um, video interviews. And then at the end of June, I think June 22nd, I'll be doing a live webinar that is also free. And I'll be going through case studies, um, very similar to how we talked about. I'm gonna be putting up before and after photos of patients and their lab results. So what did I see on the stool test? What did I see on the urine test? How do I go about treating that? And then you get to see just the amazing miracles that happen when you treat the root cause and you can really clean up uh, so much so many, so much skin issue. So I don't have a link for that, but if, if people go and register for learnskin.com, which is free, uh, you'll get a notice of when that live, um, a link to the masterclass and, and that's all free as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I know a lot of people will be diving into that. Thank you, Dr. Greenberg. This was so informative and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I love chatting with you about it. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.